Welcome to Still Growing in Grace, a program dedicated to inspiring joy, giving hope, and delighting in grace. I'm Mike Zenker, and I'll be sharing with you a message of hope that will expand your understanding of God's love and amazing grace. God already deeply loves you, totally accepts you, and really, really likes you. Growing in Grace Ministries Canada and Hope Fellowship, your community church, invites you to enjoy today's program as we dig deeper into what it means to be still growing in grace. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for taking time to join us here on Still Growing in Grace. And uh, today, we're going to start a new mini-series that actually was aired two years ago. Um, but uh, in light of all the stuff going on, I thought this is this is a really important topic to revisit. And I'll explain in just a moment. Um, but before then, uh, I want to give a quick announcement and a, uh, an update on a conference that's coming up. Um, we just launched it this past week. So on uh, January 13th, beginning on the 13th, the 20th, and 27th, and we may have to go into February. It might end up being a four-night event. Uh, we're having a conference called Healing Life's Hurts Through Understanding Forgiveness. Um, the list of some of the most of the guests are uh, contributors are right there on the screen. Um, you'll enjoy those. We're adding a couple more. Um, so just a heads up on that. But uh, you'll want to pre-register for this event. Uh, it's by donation. Um, and you just click on the link in the description below. So you, you just can't miss that. So just just look down below and you'll you'll see the description there. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to this event. I started some of the recordings already and uh, interviewed, uh, I've already done five. And it's like, oh my goodness, this is going to be good. <laughs> and it's, it's going to surprise some of you. I'm, I mean it. it. It just will. So if you're ready to be teachable and ready to uh, learn more or expand your understanding on this topic of forgiveness, uh, it's going to be a good one. I think, I think this is one of the one of the top topics that uh, everyone in our world struggles with. And so, um, yeah, I think you'll love it. Um, back to this uh, event. Uh, oh, by the way, good morning, Linda, and good morning, Leo. Um, Linda, you're down near Wallaceburg, I believe. And Leo, don't know where you're from, but uh, maybe just say, hey, watching from where? Just tell me where. I'd love to hear your comments. So if you're watching, make a quick comment and let me know where you're watching from. That helps. Um, but this uh, this uh, next section I'm going to share with you. Um, two years ago, we did a conference called Grace and Grieving, and we had William Paul Young, author of The Shack, uh, come here, and we ended up uh, uh, having a really incredible event because, to, okay, to me, there's three huge, huge topics I, I really, really want to focus on the rest of my life, <clears throat> at least for now. Identity, who are we in Christ? Uh, what happens to us? Um, finished work of the cross, that. Then there's the topic of grieving. Our humanity grieves and we don't deal with grief very well. And this is a continual topic. And in light of all the funerals I do, I thought this is, this won't go away. Well, the next one is the forgiveness one. So, uh, but back to the uh, grieving one, the next uh, five weeks, we're going to be sharing um, some clips. Uh, first, today's episode is a, an interview I did with Paul before the conference. Then there's one with Brad Jerzak uh, talking about grief before the conference. And then there are two or sorry, three different uh, weeks of the actual conference conversation. Brace yourself. This is a really, really good series. And having this played throughout Christmas and December, I think is timely. Amazing. Okay, let's see who else is here. We've got Lisa. Yay, from New Hampshire. Yay. And then we have Earl watching from Toronto. Good morning. Sarah from Texas. Woohoo! Hey, uh, if you know who Don Keithley is in Texas, um, I just did a recording with him yesterday. It was incredible. Uh, yeah, you'll love it. Robert down in Windsor. Good morning. Um, so let's get into this topic of grief um and why it's important to discuss it and i think paul even dabs into the forgiveness topic a little bit so brace yourself this is going to be a really really good conversation uh, i apologize for my microphone in the interview i thought i had the right microphone turned on while recording but when i was done oh my goodness i was so disappointed but uh, i think you're gonna enjoy this so here we go here we go 
Uh, welcome, Paul Young. I'm so glad you're part of this show today. Um, honored to be a part of it. Thank, thank you. you. For those that are listening on local radio or podcast, uh, this is a video interview ahead of time for an event coming up uh, in January, January 18th. It's an event called Grace and Grieving, Finding Hope in the Pain. And I'm going to be chatting with Paul Young for two, at least 45 minute sessions, just chatting through the really tough questions. And so I want to I want you to meet Paul ahead of time. Um, I want to even look at his background a touch here because the shack is kind of a big book, which drew all of our attention. And uh, I want to see how we can bridge some hope to people that need it. So Paul, thank you. This is uh, really, really honored, cool. Honored to be here. So yep. and like you mentioned, you know, everybody experiences two things in common, um, loss and, and love. Yeah. And it's, in, it's inside that mix of loss and love that, that our lives are, are being discovered, expressed, experienced. And, um, and so the idea of grace and grieving hmm. is about love and loss. Yeah. 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 So I'm going to cheat. Let me give you an easy question. Um, the book, The Shack. Uh, maybe you could give it, some people may not know the story because you were here in 2013. I can't believe it was that long ago. Right. Um, but you shared your story, uh, the story behind the shack. Uh, and we're catapulting or piggybacking that for this event because the book deals with a lot of stuff. Give us a quick summary of what led you to the book and what you've, uh, some of the results of the book that you've heard around the world. Oh my gosh. So I know. easy, easy question that could take hours, right? Right. Um, what led up to the book was just getting to a place in my life where I finally felt like I was healthy. And that was the year I turned 50. So it's not like it was just an overnight sort of thing. I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid. So I'm steeped in modern evangelical fundamentalism. And yep. um, that's, that's the world I grew up in. And I'm a firstborn on top of it. So oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I, I had all sorts of religious expectations. What's, I'm 51 now. So I, it's like when I, when the age I'm at now is when you began this. Well, I, I, the real, I began it from a child, you know, because sure. I, I think the process in our lives is it wraps itself inside the world that we grow up in and, and our experiences are never left behind. They are mm -hmm. then worked into the sound that we become. So I can, I can look back at my life and say, I can track it all the way back to my childhood and say there are certain things that I experienced as a child, which were incredibly wonderful and other things that were incredibly destructive. Mm. You know, um, child abuse started for me in a culture that is not, uh, it's not my passport culture. It's culture I grew up in overseas, but the, the child abuse began inside of that culture before I was five years old. So, wow, that's amazing. Oh, it's terrible. And, um, and there's nothing quite like child abuse, as, as far as I know. There's nothing quite like child abuse that will tear up you know, the, the fabric of the human soul. So, so uh, again, growing up in a multicultural world was an incredibly wonderful thing. Growing up with a very angry father who didn't have a chip for being a dad was a very mm. terrible thing. The sexual abuse was a terrible thing. Uh, being sent away to boarding school at six and having big boys come at night and molest the little boys, that was not a, a, a good experience. But I thought you were on missions trip. It should have been extra safe. Uh, yeah, right. No, I was part of a generation. I'm old enough to, to say that, you know, there was a generation of us and not just one, there were a number of generations of us that were basically sacrificed on the altar of mission. And there was a sense that if you were doing the work of God, you would be like Abraham who was willing to sacrifice his son on the altar. You know, that, that would be the real test, whether you could, you could put your own children at risk. And, 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 that, and that's not an accusation. You know, my parents were trying to do the best that they knew how. Mm -hmm. inside of a frame of reference of a religious conviction that um, that I think originated in compassion in a sense, you know, uh, because there's a longing in us to to actually do something in the world that matters, that 
that expresses truth and goodness and reality, but it comes packaged in our own experience. And so it's layered with all the damage we've had with all the sense of abandonment or, you know, we have, um, we have 12 grandchildren right now. Well, wow. <laughs> um, they're all 12 years old and under. And, and one of them is adopted from Uganda who, and she was a, basically a throwaway child in a, mm. in a world where she wasn't wanted. And, and, you know, she's now in second grade and, but we're going to have to deal with some things because it, it comes with that experience. There was a time where she basically lived on weak, weak tea and white bread. I mean, that, that was her sustenance growing up. And so, you know, there are some, there are some things that are going to have to uh, be exposed and come to the surface because of the losses in her life. And, and, and love doesn't just make those things go away. You know, actually love creates an environment where those things can be exposed and healing can happen. It's, that sounds so opposite to what we grew up with because <clears throat> the Western world thinks it's, it, you gotta be passive then, you know, if you're going to be loving you, that means passive and no confront, no confrontation. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Well, you know, um, <clears throat> I was, <clears throat> I was with Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan. Oh priest. my goodness. He's amazing. <clears throat> he is amazing. And, uh, <coughs> and I did a conference with him on the Trinity. And, uh, so we, we were driving along and he says, he says to me, so he says, Paul, this may sound really strange coming from a celibate Franciscan priest, but he said, I think the greatest gift that God ever gave the human race is marriage. He said, wow. because it puts you into proximity with someone where you can't hide your crap the way that you, you did, you know, and a lot of us go into marriage thinking we're a certain kind of person, but, but the friction of exposure to relationship causes our crap to come to the surface hmm. in one form or another. Mine did, you know, and, and part of the reason it took 50 years for me to heal is because I kept everything hidden, you know, because that's the way we grew up, right? Is, well, don't, don't we also start our relationships dating only showing the best? There's no way we're going to show our crap. We're only going to show the best part so we can woo the other person, hook them into the ring, say the I do, and then, and then what? Yeah, and I don't, and I think most of that's subconscious. I don't think it's yeah, a conscious. Attempt. I agree, fully yeah. agree. Yeah, so it's not like we've devised a plan to get past Correct. somebody's crap detector. You know, yeah. it's that we are all trying to survive, mm -hmm. and that's that's the that's a commonality in terms of loss is that we all become survivalists. That is, we develop certain skill sets in order to have a sense of being safe. For example, lying. Lying, everybody, they don't like lying. They are against lying. And yet most people employ that survival mechanism in one sense or another. Or you don't, you don't tell the real truth because of the, you don't tell the whole truth, you know, because of the um, repercussions or the consequences. And so you learn, you learn to guard yourself, you know. Mm. For, for me, my dad was an abusive disciplinarian. And and lying, lying became a survival skill to try to get out of the beatings, you know, and um, that and begging, you know. Mm. So, so, you know, over time, um, lying worked some of the time. And so it became part of the arsenal of survivalism. And then I drug that into my other relationships where I didn't want to deal with the emotional repercussions of a particular conversation. And, you know, and it happened, thank God, I'm, I'm married to um, an incredibly powerful and strong woman who, who, um, who wouldn't allow me to just stay hidden. Wow. She's all about exposure. And, and I think exposure is a good thing. Um, I actually think it's necessary for the healing to actually happen. I think the unexposed is the unhealed. So it's like an honesty that's forced. Like instead of uh, protecting the lies, uh, the exposure means I'm exposing who I really am. Do you still love me? Yeah. Um, yeah. You, oftentimes there's, there are a lot of us who are so broken that it's not like we're going to volunteer that kind of exposure. <laughs> I agree. We have to actually get caught. 
<laughs> and, um, you know, we get caught in our lies or we caught, you know, we build a little house of cards, a, a persona that we've created in order to survive. And at some point, and, and, and I think, I think God has absolutely the intention of destroying anything that is in us that is not of love's kind, which would include every part of what we fabricated as a survival persona, an avatar. And um, there's this great passage, which I love, which gives my people all kinds of fits. And that's the one where Jesus says, you know, many will say to me on that day, I did miracles in your name and I healed the sick and I, I preached the gospel and I did all these good religious things, you know, and Jesus will, Jesus says, and I will say to them, depart from me into everlasting destruction because I don't even know you. Right. That'll mess up people's heads. Well, it's one of those passages that you just kind of skim over. And, yep. uh, you know, because it just, it's like, really? And, and when we hear the words everlasting destruction, we think hell, you know? Yeah. And, um, but that's just, we're so hell conscious as my people are anyway. We've, we've got a bigger relationship to hell than we ever had to Jesus. Yeah. And um, so uh, what's that passage actually saying? It's saying you've confused your performance with your identity. And I don't build a relationship with an avatar. I, I refused to treat the person you really are as the person you present to me. Wow, that's beautiful. Right? Yeah. So I, I want that avatar absolutely and completely destroyed. Why? So that you and I have a possibility of a relationship that love can actually happen. Because as long as you're performing your sense of identity, I don't even know who you are. You're not telling me who you are. You're not being a truth teller. There's no basis for relationship. So is the, is the shack then a, a story of you walking through how to arrive at that awareness? Yeah, a lot of it is, yes. So I um, had a woman from Nashville who's a writer, Leanne Stewart. She says to me, she wrote me an email when the book first came out, and she said, I have no idea who you are. I don't know anything about you, but my sense is, that Missy, who is the main character's daughter, who's abducted and presumed to be murdered, that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child. Wow. And Mackenzie is you as the adult trying to deal with it. And I, and I tell people all the time that, that Mackenzie's weekend in the shack, which is the centerpiece for the story, that that weekend represents an 11-year dismantling and rebuilding journey for me. And... Um, I would love extreme soul makeover. You know, I'd love instant transformation. Give me a red or blue pill, but we're too incredibly crafted for quick fixes, mm -hmm. you know? And, and if, if love, if God is love and, and, and real love does not force transformation, you know, it is present with you. It confronts you, right? Because yeah. that's part of exposure but it is not willing to stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains. So there is a fiery process. I, I love the statement that religious people believe in hell, but spiritual people have been there. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah I've heard that. That's awesome. It is. And I think it's, it's very true. Everybody gets salted with fire, you know, which means that fire is a restorative thing. It's to burn away everything in us that is not of love's kind. And, and that is a journey that all of us are on. And human relationships put us into those kinds of uh, environments in which transformation can actually happen. So does loss, by the way. There is something really clarifying about loss. I have a bunch of friends on death row in Tennessee, in Nashville, in Unit 2 of Riverbend uh, Penitentiary. And, and these guys have become my friends over the last few years. And, um, and I was talking to Terry, one, one of my friends there, in, who I know the best of all the guys there. And, um, and, I was, and we were talking about, I said, Terry, you know, your prison is obvious. You know, it's brick and steel and gravel and wire. And, um, and there's really a great clarity to your mm. prison, right? Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where you're going. <laughs> yeah. While so many of us out there, outside of these walls, have no clarity about the prisons that we live inside. In fact, yeah. 
we have so got accustomed to the prisons of our lives that we have called them home. And, um, and so what, what I may see as a prison in a person's life, they may call home. So I need to be very careful not to pull them through the bars of their own prison for their own sake. Mm -hmm. Not my job. No, but some, some religious people want to. They use the, they have a little tiny sliver of awesome good news, and then they use it as a fire hydrant on people instead of a reverse osmosis tap. You know, like, don't overdo it. Be loving and gentle. Don't overdo this little nugget you have, because that's even a limited nugget. Even you think, you think you know the world, but no. Yeah. That's what I, think, I think your book has done that for me. It has woken me up to slivers of questions, or making me address questions, or at least... Um, be aware there are questions I had, you put words to them, and now i got to process them. It's like, wait a minute, somebody actually said that? I've been thinking that the whole time, but now I don't know how to walk through it, and then your book does. Yeah, so, you know, like I said, extreme soul makeover would be much easier than actual process, the process of transformation. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, going back to something you had said earlier about about creating a persona in order to win the love and the affection of someone, you know, <laughs> yep. like the dating thing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and here's the difference between real love and infatuation, because infatuation is what the Greek would call eros, which is not a term that's used in scripture, by the way. <laughs> and um, it, was a, it was considered an absolute uh, diabolical um, um, not, not even a reality. It was considered such a delusion that it, it, it carried a demonic name associated. Wow. Yeah. I've only heard the softened version that it's self-seeking, self-centered. <laughs> That's yeah. a dumbed or, down or, or that it's um, erotic and therefore the sexual part of love or the, you know, the well, romantic gives, part. Right? But that messes up the, the physical, sexual, uh, healthy perspectives on it. If you associate that with that. Correct. But that's what has been done in our culture and also within some of our religious Christianity too. We've, we've created Eros as one of the kinds of love that has some sense of legitimacy, whereas I don't think it's legitimate at all. Our, I think our equivalent would be infatuation. And infatuation mm -hmm. is where you are pulled out of your senses based on what? Based on projecting your own needs through an object. It's relational porn is what it is. It's pornography of relationship, where, where it's not just an image on a, on a screen or an image in a magazine or something. This is a three-dimensional image through which you are trying to love yourself. And, and infatuation is based on not knowing. And that's the point I'm trying to get to, is mm -hmm. that real love is always based on knowing. Therefore, that which keeps you from being known has to be exposed and destroyed right? Which would be all the survival skills and all this. And, and a lot of that we have so incorporated into our existence. That's why I say we, we call our prison home, you know, mm -hmm. that it's what we know. And uh, it reminds me of so many times where Jesus would say to someone who was a paralytic or, or blind, they, he'd say, so what do you want? And it's like, isn't it obvious? Well, no, it's not obvious. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of us, you know, some event that hurt us in our childhood, we cannot let go of it. And therefore, we now call it home. We call that we don't know how to present our sense of identity apart from that loss. I, I just had a thought and uh, confirm with me on this if it's true, because I think it's true. Um, I know you've gone through sexual abuse. Uh, we've shared our story, or I've shared mine with you. I too have gone through um, sexual abuse from a Roman Catholic priest and a very abusive mother. But it wasn't until I was like 45 years old that some triggers woke up, and I'm finding more and more men, especially, that aren't able to even talk about or something's going on in them at later age in life, not when they're younger or when they're getting married. But have you found a lot of um, more mature men are suddenly now waking up to, I got to deal, what is going on? Something's waking yeah. up and I don't know what to do about it. Does that yeah. ring a bell to you? Absolutely. And there's, there's no question about it. A lot of times you have the um, psychological resources to just bury stuff. 
and 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 you what you do is you turn outward you turn into work alcoholism or <laughs> alcoholism or some kind of addiction you know <laughs> mission work for god or creating a ministry or i mean you can put it into any category you want and ouch well it's it's the truth that's what we do yeah. right yeah. rather than <laughs> rather than do the internal work is where the real work is done um we then make our job to do the external work and everything becomes performance and presentation. And that's the avatar that Jesus wants to destroy. Wow. Right. And so mm -hmm. we then create an identity based on our performance and in the religious community it would be like, you know, having a religious title or having a religious mission or all of that. But, but what happens is that suddenly, you know, you, you've managed to survive until you're an older man and one, your internal resources aren't as capable. Uh, the focus is no longer so much on the outside, especially if you've got kids and grandkids. Mm -hmm. You know, grandchildren will change you in a way that your children weren't capable of doing. And I have uh, no idea. Yeah, no, trust me. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the truth. And, but, but again, it's like, all of a sudden there's more space and into that space comes all these conversations you've never had and yeah. all these elements of exposure that you've never allowed, you know, uh, the secrets will find their way to the surface at some point. And we are, they're getting, they're getting purged, right? It's like the fire of gold, yeah. whatever is purging all the stuff that shouldn't be there out. Yeah. And, and that heat is necessary in order to melt so that the crap comes to the surface. I don't like Southern heat that's in like the tropics and stuff in the Caribbean. I don't like the emotional heat. That's hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it is devastating and it's not just hard. It is, it is cataclysmic sometimes. And, and that's what a lot of us, I mean, we've just piled the, the locker full of crap, you know, and then keep, trying to keep the door shut and it's <laughs> poisons leak out and begin to devastate our relationships. You know, unforgiveness is like that. Um, oh my. Yeah. 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 Unforgiveness is, is like wearing a corpse. You know, and, I and, just, I'm just finishing on this uh, still growing grace uh, radio program, a series on uh, healing life's hurts through understanding forgiveness. And it's about a 15 week uh, series. And the one that just aired today was uh, on the last myth of what forgiveness is not. Uh, it happens to be uh, forgiveness is not as in not the same thing as reconciliation. And I think it's one of the greatest hindrances preventing people from forgiving someone because they're they've been told well that means i have to automatically go in connection um but I'm, I'm before you respond um we're coming to the end of this half of the program okay. and uh we're going to continue the second half in just so paul last time uh the last uh, episode we were we ended up talking about um, unforgiveness uh, being something, and then I talked to you about reconciliation being a myth, uh, that it is not the same thing as forgiveness. And Correct. I don't know if you remember your response of what you're going to respond to that, but I want to continue and, and follow this up, and then we'll talk about the conference coming up. Yeah. So um, forgiveness is for the sake of the victim. Reconciliation is for the sake of the perpetrator. Mm. That's, a, that's, that's a big deal. And they're not the same thing. They are not the same thing. They're not even close to being the same thing. Um, forgiveness is letting go of something so that you can be free from it, right? This is why I say that unforgiveness is like wearing a corpse on your back, the corpse of the memory of what was done to you, the corpse of what that person did, right? And so, but you that corpse... You, you also talked about the letting go of the other person's throat. Throat, Or right. poisoning someone else so that... And, but, or, Something like that. There was a quote you gave me that was brilliant of what it yeah, is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in the book itself, it talks about how forgiveness is letting someone, letting go of someone's throat. Yeah. And, um, but it's like we've got them clutched to us, right? And so the, the corpse of that memory begins to putrefy all of our other relationships. You cannot get away from the toxicity of unforgiveness. It just begins to then penetrate into our family relationships and to, you know, and, and, and we'll begin to build an identity based on the existence of that pain. So mm. a lot of people who are stuck in unforgiveness, um, when you first meet them, a lot of times will tell you their loss. That's the first thing that they'll tell you. 
because that's now become part of their identity. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a time where you've gone through loss, where that becomes right front and center yep. about how you need to talk about it. But I'm There's talking a time about, and a place. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about people who have held on to these kinds of losses for decades, you know. Yep. And the thing about forgiveness is that you don't actually need a face to do it, you know. And in the, in the movie, in the book, you never see the perpetrator's face. And people would say, why, why don't you? And I said, because you don't need a face for forgiveness. For reconciliation, you have to have a face. I, recon I am, reconciliation is the rebuilding of trust. That's a whole- It's not automatic. Animal. Absolutely not. Yep. And it is for the sake of the perpetrator, but the perpetrator is completely, um, uh, it is wrong for the perpetrator to demand or expect reconciliation. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And, I, and, and this, it's wrong for the victim to place that demand on themselves. Mm. That is that, that, and that's where the confusion between, between forgiveness and reconciliation happens. And as a result, people don't have decent boundaries. They keep getting re-victimized because they think that by forgiving, they need to trust. Yeah. And it's like, no, you can, you can forgive someone and never trust them again. And that's totally okay. Oh my goodness, you're, I love it. Yes. I, uh, I'm in my world, um, I'm, I, I'm a chaplain in multiple areas. I'm a nursing home chaplain. I'm a fire department chaplain, but I'm also a funeral home chaplain. Mm -hmm. And I do almost 100 funerals a year. I love doing funerals. I love being there for people when they're having such a great difficulty time, of time. But I also sit down with families, and you'll get this right now based on what you just said. That's what triggered it. Um, if you sit down and a death has occurred in a family and stuff was not dealt with, as in mom or dad dies, suddenly the kids who've been fighting because of uh, something mom or dad separated them on, now they're stuck dealing with a conflict and a loss. They're not only losing and grieving uh, their loved one who died, but now nobody knows how to deal with anything else like relationships. And it's a mess if it's not dealt with. The fangs come out, jealousy comes out, greed comes out. Nobody wants to talk at a, at a, a necessary healthy level because they can't. They weren't right. prepped. Well, and this is not just prepped. We were just never taught. And, yeah. you know, and this is, I think, truer for men, generally speaking, than for women, generally speaking. And that is that a lot of men have never been taught even the simple relational skills of conversation mm. about, about their own heart, about their own emotions. Um, they've just never been taught that. Um, and uh, Kim and I went last night and saw the, the, um, the movie about uh, Fred Rogers. Yeah. Oh, I want to see that. Yeah. And um, it's, it was different than I had anticipated. You know, I don't know what I had anticipated, but but there is a scene in there where the main character, who's not Fred Rogers, and, uh, but the main character is trying to take steps to open up, um, trying to find a way to say things about emotions that he has not been able to tap into. And it's his relationship with Fred Rogers on the outside of this that then moves him in the direction of his own relationship with his spouse. And... Um, and, uh, and it's a very powerful little piece there because you, you get to watch someone stepping into a world that they've never been in before hmm. you know, because they weren't taught. And, and, um, and I wasn't, you know, so a, a lot of my marriage, I just simply shut down because you either, you either come out as antagonism and violence of one sort or another, you know, uh, anger, or you just disappear. And I was a disappearer, you know, because my dad was an emotional verbal processor. The problem was I married an emotional verbal processor. And, um, and so my, and I, and again, largely unconscious at the time, I can look back and see it clear as a bell now, but my response was to just disappear because that's what I did when my dad came at me. Right. And, um, and, and it took me a long time here's a survival skill. Kim would say to me, um, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm a, this is how I process. Right. And so when I'm processing like this, I'm not asking for help. Oh, right. I've never heard that before. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is hilarious. I'll be quiet. Keep going. She says, <laughs> if I actually want your help, I'll ask for it. Oh, no. but, but on my side here, here's what I'm doing. Oh, 
where I went to hide was in my mind, in my intellect, right? Because that was part of the persona that I built up. I'm a smart guy, you know? And even though I thought that I just fooled people, at least my persona was smart. And um, so, so my way to deflect was to try to help. Mm -hmm. And so actually, I'm not actually trying to help Kim. I'm actually trying to stop her from emotionally processing so I don't feel like a piece of crap. Wow. That was what was going on inside of me, right? So, so I'd couch it in noble sounding language. It's the same kind of lies that men do where they say, you know, oh, well, I didn't want her to be worried, so I didn't tell her about our financial situation or yeah. whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of lies that end up just, if we'd listened to our wives, we'd have been far wealthier <laughs> than we are. You know? yeah. They're all listening. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> but again, again, there's a survival mechanism, right? Yeah. And so it's the same, same sort of skill where I could, I could take what somebody was accusing me of and I could make it their fault. You mm. know, I could spin it back on them really fast. And I didn't even know how, how I did it. It was just, it was a survival mechanism. And uh, so in, in my relationship with Kim, it took me a lot of time to learn how to do this. And I think men present a persona of having it together because that's a survival mechanism and, 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 and women buy into it. And then they, get, they marry the guy and find out that, you know, that persona is about a, an inch deep and a mile wide. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, who are you? actually you know because like you said we've presented something and we and that presentation is not to win them over not it was to stay safe way more than it was to ever win anybody over. i love that that's that sounds more authentic i like that yeah because uh, yeah. i would uh, typically me i would run to a guilt trip feeling oh that oh shoot am i really being authentic here you know that, that's no, my... that's not a that's not a guilt trip that's a shame trip Okay, I'm ashamed. Yeah, shame is my has been my second language, and I've been unlearning the the message of shame in my life for many years. Yeah, I right. didn't know how consumed I was. It framed um, my language and my relationship with my wife because I would want to make sure she's feeling okay because I felt bad about myself. Oh, it's okay, dear. It's okay. And then when we started being honest, because five years ago I started doing some counseling, she yeah. was not happy. Not because I had personal counseling, but it. it I did a pendulum swing of being too honest, which wasn't great either for the relationship. And we worked through that. That was a hard, hard time as I'm working through my pain. Yeah. Um, by, and too, by too honest, do you mean that you didn't know how to communicate the truth in such a way that it wasn't abusive? Because no, because it wasn't abusive. I, I think I, I was saying things for the sake of here. I got to say, it. this is how I really feel. It may sound harsh, but I have to find out. I, I got to be honest and not say it's and say the opposite where I would, I would not say the truth. And then eventually, um, in, uh, through some counseling help, I, I was, I was encouraged to, you know what? Don't regress, be firm, say this. I, I've not talked about this. Here it is. And it, it, it really rocked the boat a little bit for sure. Well, of, of course it will. But I'm, I'm kind of going after the idea of being too honest, as if you were partly now going to go back to lying, you know. And mm. so I don't think your language is legit. I think you're, what you're doing is you're saying, I didn't, I was trying to learn how to communicate and didn't do it kindly. Mm. Right. Yeah, because she sometimes says I sound mean, but I'm, I don't feel I'm being mean. I'm trying to verbalize something. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. But but you've got a pattern of relationship in which yeah. you know, the way that you come across is because I know this from personal experience. I did this to one of my girls not, not a month ago where I'm trying to be objective and helpful. And I absolutely trash something that was precious to her. Ouch. Yeah. I've done that too. And I'm, yeah. I feel bad for that. I, I'm trying to learn. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was trying to be honest, but actually there was a whole lot of other crap going on underneath that mm. I didn't realize. It's almost like you need a guide to walk through that. You can't, as a couple, you need someone to sometimes coach you through to referee the conversation. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, you know, I think, I think you can, you can, it's better to, to be in the midst of that conflict than to just hide it completely, yeah. you know? And, and that's a hard thing for us, especially when conflict has been such a, a marker for the way we've grown up.
Mm-hmm. And, then, and then our avoidance of it has been our survival skill, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, oh my gosh. So it is learning a new way to communicate, learning a vocabulary that we didn't have before. Yeah, I had no idea your tone mattered. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, even interpreting scripture tone matters. Uh, I know, I know. So, so, okay, yeah. we, we, got, we got about uh, 10 minutes left. Okay. Uh, I'd like to dig into the conference coming up. And okay. uh, I, my goal is to address some big questions people have. And I, I'm wondering if, if you have some pretty quick ones off the top of your head that typically come your way. People are asking you some of the jugular, go for the jugular uh, questions of where's God in this pain? If God is good, how could he let this happen? Like God is suffering. That's a huge one right there. Theodicy is what the technical theological term is. And it's will, like, will we have time to address that in the conference, do you think? is there? Um, there's no question. You can't avoid it. Okay, if, good. If you're going to deal with loss and grief and suffering, it's like, you know, it's like I have two cousins who both took their own lives because of Ouch. schizophrenia. You know, and it's like, so if there's a God who's good, how come? you know, or where was God in this? Or, you know, we love the why question as if that was going to solve something. But, uh, yeah. But, um, but yeah, you cannot avoid, you cannot avoid if there is any sense of a transcendent goodness, a transcendent divine nature of, of love, then it, it runs smack into loss. And it's like, what do you do? You know, we've had We've had the losses. I told you some of my own personal losses, but you know, we had a six month period where Kim, we were just married and Kim's mom goes in for routine surgery, has a massive coronary at age 59 and passes away over three days. But three months before that, my 18 year old brother, Stephen was killed. And three months after Shirley died, my five-year-old niece, Jennifer was killed the day after her fifth birthday. Wow. That's a lot. Oh my gosh. By the time that Jennifer, um, um, had, had passed Kim, Kim didn't have the capacity to even go to the funeral because she's much more healthy than I am. Right. I could disassociate and compartmentalize and be the strong person and not feel it, you know, not completely, but at least I was much more self-protective. I'd completely fall apart now, which is evidence of the health in my life. Not, not evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, I know we know loss, we live in a world of loss, but there's also this deep sense of longing for the good and for love and for kindness and for like, so in the conflict between love and loss, how do you, how do you work that out? How do you see that? What is going on? And, and and so there are some elements of this that are absolutely crucial. Um, what is the character and nature of God? And what is the character and nature of being a human being? Mm. And we'll end up talking about that. Because okay. if, if you get those things wrong, you get everything wrong. I, I agree. Yeah. Because people are looking for hope. They're trying to find hope in their darkness, uh, hope in the pain. So they may not understand it. They think they do, but they know they don't. Please give us some direction. And so, and, and, and directions not the it's not going to be the solution. It's yeah. going to be the openness to presence. That's going mm-hmm. to be where we're going to find the solution. This is why you being a chaplain matters to those folks that you are with. That's why the healing, you know, the people who are doing the twelve step programs and the people who are who are in the midst of those losses and your first responders, how they relate to people changes things completely mm-hmm. by presence. You know, um, I was, I was recently, I was in a, in Eastern Oregon and during the question and response time, someone asked me, they said, I'd like to get your comment on this Irish, uh, quotation that when you, when you die, the only question that will really matter is, did you have any impact? That that's the question. So what do you think about that? And, and one is that they were talking about influence more than impact. Right. But, but they're saying the only question that will really matter is whether you had an impact by your presence in the world. And, and I've never been asked that before. And it's one of those things that just was immediately there in my mouth before my mind could think about it enough. So it was actually came across as very brilliant 
but but it was it just it just was one of those things that made me look really good and um but what i said was you know i've never heard a child ask that question wow because oh. i said you have to become an adult to ask that question because a child assumes presence is impact right it's yeah. i'm here you know i don't have to do anything my it's, question would be who's asking that question in the first place when you cross over like really <laughs> well well you know, and like I said, you have to be an adult to ask that question. Yeah. Where suddenly performance has become that's, the basis. That's a brilliant response. Huh. I told you. And that, it, it happened so fast, it obviously didn't come from my mind. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that's, that's where I trust uh, the Holy, Holy Spirit. So Incredible. But it is. It's the right, it was the right answer. And it's like, no. We're designed to be children and our impact is by presence. So it's, it's a similar thing in terms of dealing in the midst of loss when you're around people. It's not even what you say, because a lot of us don't know what to say, so we say stupid things, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, so and, so what, uh, is it, what is it that shakes a person in a, with a horrific loss? What does it do to them and what kind of questions hit their heads? What have you seen and experienced, if you can put those into words? Because somebody listening might go, that's me. Like, what do you think? Yeah. You're going to, you know, everybody responds differently because of what they bring to the table. Yeah. And, you know, some people will lock up. Some people actually be emotional and lament well and grieve well. A lot of us, just, we just are stuffers, you know. We'll just bury it inside and we don't feel anything. And then we feel guilty about not feeling anything. Yeah. And, you know, one, we don't know how to lament or grieve very well. Two is that we, um, we don't realize what a process grieving is. And so, you know, there are times when it comes through just like a wave, it just rolls over you and, and that's normal. That's okay. And then sometimes the body cannot handle the emotional uh, intensity. And so it just backs off and you don't feel anything. Mm. And that's normal too. Yeah. And, and what people in general what they long for in the midst of loss is simply presence. Someone who is with them, who doesn't have to say anything. But you don't need a degree for that. No, <laughs> no, you absolutely. In fact, the degree can sometimes be an inhibitor, you know, and uh, because then you think you got to say something and solve something or fix something. And this is not something to be fixed. It's something to be, to, to live inside of and walk through inside one day's grace at a time and yeah. that's it you know that's um it, but it's very clarifying this is why i think you like funerals is because mm. you know it suddenly you know real things come to the surface you know death is absolutely wrong and it's and part of what we need to learn how to do is be furious about things that are wrong and um but at the same time if there's any backhanded grace to death itself, it's that it clarifies a lot of things. It brings to the surface that which matters. Suddenly, you know, all the 80-hour the, the work week doesn't matter if the person you love is no longer there. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a clarifying, I, it's I a had clarifying a, fire. I, I had a, uh, a husband um, give his wife's eulogy the other day, and she had uh, taken her life. And in the eulogy, he said, you know, I always said, I'm going to die first. Um, and then you said, no, I want to die before you. And then he, he pretty much yelled it out, but I didn't want it to be like this. And he was angry. And I thought, oh, brilliant. Yeah, it was like a, a moment him. of, it was, it was really articulate. And I, I'd not heard that in a service in 20 years. Just yeah. that millisecond of pure emotional truth that didn't need a, a definition. It was like, wow. And, and it gave permission. You know, in, in the Shaq movie, I don't know if you've seen it or not. Oh, yeah. Okay, so there's a, there's a scene where Mackenzie, who's a Sam Worthington's the actor, and he's bringing down the body of his daughter. And, and he, said, he said to uh, Gil Netter, the producer, he said, you know, by this time in the movie arc, in the storyline, Mackenzie has dealt with forgiveness. He's dealt with um, loss. He's dealt... He's, He's dealt with the issue of his dad. He's all this. He said, I think this should be a, just a scene of closure. I think I'll play it, play it very, you know, uh, un, uh, low key. 
And Gil laughs, it goes like, you do that. Well, he tried it a dozen times and every time when he, well, one is he had a, when he first came on set, he had a 10 week old little baby boy, his first child. So now he's holding a, a child that's, you know, not much bigger. And, and every time he got into that scene, he fell completely apart. And one of the greatest gifts of the movie is that scene because it gave people permission to grieve the losses because they are losses and we need to learn how to grieve well. So, but these are all things we'll talk about when we get together. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I hope this event will be is another step in teaching us how to grieve well, find hope in the grief. That's not the end of the road. It's part of the road. Oh man. I hope you guys enjoyed that. That was a, a really good conversation. Again, I'm watching with you as, as you uh, are, are enjoying this uh, interview or conversation. Um, yeah, I've learned a lot since, uh, since that first aired two years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I thank you for all the comments. I, I got to read the comments as we're going down the list and going through this, and it's, it's, uh, it's quite incredible. I, next week's going to be really good too. Uh, I think next week will be Brad Jerzak uh, talking about grief as well. It's such a big topic, um, and it's at Christmas time. Uh, often, grief comes to the surface in a way that we're just not ready for. We just didn't see coming, and um, I, I, yeah. All right, um, just a heads up. Uh, I'm going to show this. Please uh, consider this event coming up in January. Share it on Facebook. The Eventbrite link is below in the comments. So um, um, make sure you, you click on it, read it. Uh, that link will be updated continually because the actual schedule and topics won't be listed until uh, probably a week or two before the actual conference. I may put some of them on early because I, I now know what some of them are. Um, but man, it's going to be good. So um, again, it's all about relationships and connecting and uh, our own vulnerability. So I hope you enjoyed that. All right. Thank you so much. I look forward to connecting with you all again next week. And I hope uh, this, this encouragement uh, conversation was an encouragement to you. All right. Uh, oh, look, see who's on here. We've got uh, Lisa. Good morning, Lisa and Marianne. I believe you're in Australia. My buddy, Sean. Yay. Um, Sean, if you were watching the whole thing, I think you were laughing with me on a few parts. <laughs> Sean's an old, old friend of mine. We, we kind of grew up together. He's a, he's a great guy. Um, and then we have Anna. Anna is actually one of our contributors for the conference. So I'm going to do an interview with her and hear from her lens on this topic of forgiveness. So that I'm really looking forward to. So that's going to happen soon. Wink, wink, hint, hint. And that's all I got for now. I hope you guys have a great week. Uh, comment and share. See ya. Join me next time on Still Growing in Grace for more good news. Enjoy previous episodes by downloading our podcast at growingingrace.ca. You can also visit hopefellowshipycc.com to find our service times and location. If this show has been an encouragement to you, please consider making a donation today at growingingrace.ca and help us keep spreading this good news. Thank you again for tuning in to Still Growing in Grace.